friends, let us now listen to Brother Mel Caparos, pastor of Living Word Christian Churches of Cebu International. to God's Word, may I request everyone to please rise from their seats. We will take a look at James chapter 2, verses 21 to 26 at this time. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the Scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You and bless You for this wonderful time together to worship and declare Your praise. And I come before You with humility of heart, O God, asking that You bless my mouth. Lord, let me speak with the wisdom of the ancients. Allow me, Lord, to speak Your Word with clarity, with truth, and with passion, O God. I pray that the Holy Spirit will accompany me every step of the way even as I ask, Lord, that you will accompany all those who are present right now. Open their hearts, open their minds, make us all understand your word and your will for us to the end that your name might be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. Let's be seated in the presence of the Lord. I'm going to begin a very short two-part series which I've entitled, The Proof of Faith. Now, some of you already know that the book of James happens to be a controversial book, most especially because of the emphasis of James on the aspect of good works. Martin Luther actually doubted whether this book was actually uh, part of the canon. So he doubted whether this should be part of New Testament Scripture, again, because of the emphasis on good works. But the key to be able to understand the meaning of this book is to determine the emphasis. Because as you and I very well know, Paul had a different emphasis, and James likewise had a different emphasis as well. The emphasis of Paul was the priority of faith, all right? That was what uh, Paul talked about in Ephesians, in the book of Romans, in the book of Galatians, the priority of faith. And he declared that salvation is by faith alone. Faith alone in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. On the other hand, as we take a look at what James was trying to emphasize, he was emphasizing on the proof of faith. Once again, let me say this. He was emphasizing on the proof of faith. 
Because a lot of people at that time were declaring that they were believers, that they were Christians. And so the question is, how do we know that they are genuine Christians? And the answer of James was very simple. His answer was, if your faith is genuine, it will show in your life. It will show in the way you speak. It will show in the way you conduct yourself. It will show in the way you react and respond to certain circumstances and to different kinds of people. It will show. So the point of James is the proof of faith. And I think this subject matter is something that we need to talk about, and you will notice that James actually belabored this point. He devoted a lot of verses of Scripture just to talk about this thing, which tells us how very important this is to him and also to us. And I'm praying to God that you give careful attention to everything I have to say because this will actually determine your eternal destiny. Some of you may think that you are believers, but in truth, you may not really be a believer after all because you have not encountered God because you have not experienced a changed heart and a changed life. Now, there is hope for you. And this is the reason why we have to speak about this, because we want all of us to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. After all, in the book of Timothy, it says that God does not desire for anyone to perish. He does not desire for anyone to go to hell. Now, in this particular section, James' argument follows a threefold path. We will not be able to handle everything, but let me just show to you how the series will flow. We'll talk about, first of all, the examples of Abraham and Rahab. And what we will do is we will talk about a specific act that Abraham did that proved that he was a genuine believer. And then we will also take a look at a specific act of Rahab, which once again proves that she was a genuine believer in Yahweh. Now, we will go to the second point. And the second point, here we find the explanation of James. And under that, we will have three sub-points. First sub-point is genuine faith produces works. We've been talking about that a bit. And then we will also take a look at verse 22, which speaks about the proof of genuine faith. Again, this is connected to good works. And then in verse 23, we will talk about the proof of Scripture's veracity of Abraham's right standing and relationship with God. Because in the Scriptures, God declared Abraham righteous. Now, what's the proof of that? Again, we will show that in the explanation. The third and final point would be this, the principle. And under that, we will be talking about justification by faith through the evidence of works, all right? So if you want to prove something, you need to show proof, all right? So that is what we will do there. And then we're going to talk about the necessity of works as proof of life or proof of eternal life. Again, that's the reason why uh, James talks about that phrase, show me. Because if you're claiming 
to be a believer in Christ, you need to show me. That's what James was really trying to say. Now, we will not be able to handle everything, so we're just going to talk about the first part, the examples of Abraham and Rahab this morning. So let's go straight into the text. Let's dive into it. But before we go into a detailed discussion on the proof of faith, let us refresh ourselves with the truth that man is not saved by good works, but by faith alone. So allow me to just take a look at Titus chapter 3, verses 5 to 7. We're going to flash that on the screen right now. So let's read it together. It goes, He saved us. Now here's what it says. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. I'd like you to repeat that after me. Say this with me. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. So let's say it again. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. So this is very plain and very clear. If you're trying to save yourself by your own efforts, if you're trying to save yourselves by good works, here's the bad news. You cannot be saved. You cannot go to heaven. Your name cannot be written in the book of life if you are striving to save yourself. Very clearly, the Bible says that He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. Let me explain this a little bit. When we were at the garden tomb, I intentionally went to Isaiah chapter 53. Now, normally, when I do communion service, I do 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Or I could also do 1 Corinthians 15, which talks about the resurrection. But why did I go to Isaiah 53 when we did communion service uh, at the garden tomb? It was because there was an Israeli tour guide who was with us. His name is Moti. That's his nickname. His real name is Mordecai. Isn't that interesting? Anyway, I felt if I could minister to him, and I, you know, this is one soul. All of us who went there were all believers. And I felt this was a grand opportunity for me to be able to share to a Jew, somebody who wants to know the truth. He actually videotaped everything I had to say. So I began to explain from the Old Testament because one of the problems with Jews right now is they don't see the connection between the New Testament and the Old Testament. And that is why they feel that it is actually what we have is actually fragmented. It's not integrated. And because of that, they have difficulty in believing what we teach from the New Testament. So I had to go to the Old Testament and talk about the mercy seat. And let me just explain a little bit. I know I've explained this for, uh, for uh, some of you already, but allow me to explain it to others who may not know what happens inside what is called as the Holy of Holies. Now, you and I know that there are three major compartments in the temple uh, in Israel. You have the outer court where other people are allowed there, including um, ordinary Jews. 
but then you enter into another place, which is called the holy place, and only the priests are allowed to enter that area. And then you have the most holy compartment called the holy of holies, and this is the place where only the high priest could enter, and only once a year. And the thing is, when the high priest enters, he had to bring with him the blood of animals. Now, why did he have to do that? Because of one very important furniture in the Holy of Holies, which is called the Ark of the Covenant. Now, what is the Ark of the Covenant? Let me just, just describe it to you. Just imagine that this pulpit is the Ark of the Covenant. Now, there is a uh, container here at the bottom, which has the rod of Aaron, and not only that, you have the tablets of stone containing the Ten Commandments. Now, do you remember what happened when Moses came down with the Ten Commandments the first time around? He saw the people were having, uh, they were worshiping an idol. And not only that, guess what? They were having an orgy. They were having a sexual orgy. So those kinds of things do not just happen now. They were happening during that time. And in righteous indignation, what did Moses do? He threw down the two tablets of stone, symbolizing, again, the broken commandments. Now, the problem, of course, is how do we get accepted before God? If you and I break His commandments over and over and over again, how do we get accepted? And we find the answer in what takes place inside the Holy of Holies. Now, on top, all right, if this is where the container that contains uh, the, the tablets of stone and the rod of Aaron, you have a lid on top. This lid on top is called the mercy seat. I'll explain to you why it is called the mercy seat. On top of that, you have two angels, all right, this, uh, uh, described in the Bible as the cherubim, which symbolizes the glory of God above. Now, the question is, how do the high priest, or how does the high priest provide atonement for the people? So, here's what happens. So here come, just imagine I'm the high priest. So I move towards the mercy seat, and I have the blood of animals with me. What I do is I sprinkle blood all over the mercy seat until it is practically covered with blood. Now, under that, you have the broken commandments. But the wonderful thing is because of the blood, it covers all of our transgressions. It covers all of our sins. It covers all of the violations that we have committed against God. That is why instead of being a judgment seat, it is actually a mercy seat. And in the New Testament, Jesus Christ is our mercy seat. Amen? Jesus Christ is our mercy seat. Because of the blood of Jesus Christ, our sins are covered. 
Something very interesting when you go to Caesarea Philippi and you have this gate of Hades, which I just showed to you. Whenever they made animal sacrifices, this is what they believed. They believed that if there are streams of blood that come out of the cave, the sacrifices have been rejected by the god Pan. They believe that when you do not find those streaks of blood coming out of the cave, they believe that's the only time that the sacrifice was acceptable. It's actually the reverse of what we believe in. For us, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Because of the blood of Jesus Christ, you and I have been forgiven. Hallelujah. Amen? We have obtained mercy from God. And that is the lesson here in Titus chapter 3, verse 5. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. Thank God for mercy. Because we break the commandments of God. The Old Testament actually had more than 600 commandments. And all of them have been broken by the Jews. We ourselves have commandments in our hearts and in our conscience. And you and I know that we have violated the holiness of God. We have transgressed against God. And what you and I deserve is the wrath of God. But instead of the wrath of God, because we have accepted Christ as Lord and Savior of our lives, we have received mercy instead. I thank God for that. Because I cannot imagine myself standing in the very presence of God in His total and absolute holiness, I know I will melt in the very presence of God if I stand before Him with all of my sins. I know I will die on the spot if the holiness of God was revealed right before me. I know I will not be able to survive the glory and the holiness and the splendor and the majesty of God. And this is the reason why I thank God for mercy. Amen? I thank God for mercy. And you and I should be thankful to God for the mercy that has been lavishly poured out into our lives. That's exactly what it's saying here. By the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. My conscience is clean. Not because I have not been guilty of any sin. I know who I am. I know my past. And I know even my present. And I am so thankful to God that I can approach God with a clean conscience, with a confidence that I am accepted in the Beloved 
simply because of the blood of Jesus that washes and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. I recall the story of Dr. Jacob Chamberlain in India. You see, many Indians believe that they could be cleansed from their sins the moment they dip themselves or immerse themselves in the Ganges River. And to be able to really experience cleanness of soul, what many do is they offer many sacrifices. And there was this particular man, could you imagine, he crawled for several miles using his elbows and using his knees. He crawled all the way to the Ganges River because he believed that the moment he reached that place with that sacrifice, with that effort, and as soon as he dips himself and immerses himself in the Ganges River, he would be cleansed from his sins. He would no longer feel guilty. Dr. Chamberlain was conducting, I believe, probably a water baptism in that place, and he was talking to several Christians. And as he was talking to several Christians, this man who crawled all the way to the Ganges River dipped himself and immersed himself. And the, the sad thing was when he got out of the water, he still felt the weight of his own sins. He still felt guilty. At that moment, his eyes began to train on Dr. Chamberlain, who was beginning to explain about the forgiveness of God that comes through belief or faith in Jesus Christ. And somehow, because of the dilemma of this man, he began to listen intently. And he could no longer control himself when Dr. Chamberlain talked about forgiveness. He said, that's what I need. I need forgiveness. I need to be cleansed from my sins, he said. And Dr. Chamberlain saw this as an opportunity to be able to share the gospel. And that very day, praise God, that man who crawled all the way to Ganges River surrendered his life and made Jesus Christ the Lord and Savior of his life. We do not crawl our way to heaven because eternal life is a gift that God gives to us. Amen? Amen? Praise God for grace. Praise God for mercy. Man cannot save himself on his own for the simple reason that he cannot fulfill all of God's commandments. James chapter 2, verse 10 states this, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has broken or he has become guilty of all. That's the reason why you cannot save yourself by yourself and by your good works. Because if you were going to be saved by good works, you needed to live a perfect life. And nobody in this hall and nobody in the entire world has lived a perfect life except one, and that is Jesus Christ. Only He would qualify to go to heaven. All of us are condemned, but thanks be to God, through the cross, the righteousness of Christ has been imputed 
to all of us the moment we accept Him as our personal Lord and Savior. So perish the thought that you could save yourself. Never ever imagine, never ever hallucinate. Never ever delude yourself into thinking that you could save yourself by your own good works. That will never happen. You can never ever be justified by good works. Because we can never ever follow God perfectly. I recall one missionary once again in India. And he was talking to a group of people. Some were believers and some were not. It so happened that there was one government official who was sitting in their midst. And this missionary started talk, to talk about forgiveness, started to talk about salvation, redemption in Christ. And he started to talk about the fact that if you put your faith in Christ, you are saved. And he was declaring the people around him who believed that they were saved. The official, the government official, could not help himself. He stood up and said, I'm also saved, but not by Jesus Christ. I'm saved because of the religion of my fathers. Now, the missionary thought it wise not to argue with him at that point. But instead, he made a play in words. And so he said, Sir, I'm glad that you said that you are saved. Well, if you are saved, sir, I'd like you to join us tomorrow because we will be going and we will be visiting some outcasts. And as we visit them, we will be giving them clothing, we will be giving them food, and we will be sharing the love of Christ. Now, that was something that was difficult for this government official to do because he, be he belonged to the Brahmin, the highest religious caste in uh, India or among Hindus. And it was forbidden for them to actually mingle with those who are outcasts. But then, here is where the missionary challenged him. He said, Sir, would you like to join us? And the government official said, with much hesitation, he said, I'm saved still, but not that saved. Isn't that interesting? I'm saved, but not that saved. The truth of the matter is when we are confronted with the standards of God, we will really pale in comparison, such that we will melt in the very presence of His holiness. And so having shared that, let us not think, however, that genuine salvation is not accompanied by a change in one's life. This is the argument of James. James argues that if one is genuinely saved, it will show in his life. And we see that in the examples of Abraham and Rahab. Let's start off with the example of Abraham in verse 21. It says here in verse 21, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? Abraham proved that he was a justified or a saved man by this act that he did. 
offering his own son Isaac on the altar. Now, why was this really extraordinary? Because at the age of 75 years old, Abraham had already been praying for a child, for a descendant. God had promised him that he would have a descendant. But he waited for 25 long years. He had Isaac only when he was 100 years old. So you're talking about 25 years of waiting. Now, here comes the Lord telling him that he needed to sacrifice his only son, actually through Sarah. And at this point in time, and this is what some Bible scholars assume, Isaac might have been 30 years old already. So think about the time that Abraham had waited only to sacrifice his son. 25 years he was waiting to have Isaac born, and then 30 years later, all right, 55 years in waiting, God says you need to sacrifice your only son. Now, how many of us would be willing to do that? Could you imagine what happened with Abraham? He saw him as a baby. What joy that must have been, seeing him grow up as a toddler, then later as a young boy running around, then as a teenager, his voice changing, growing uh, in height, growing in stature, and now a full adult. Would you be willing to surrender your son? And friends, here's the thing. Some of us would not be asked by God to do such things right now. Let me ask you this question. What is the thing that you treasure the most? Would you be willing to give up and surrender the thing that you treasure the most if God would require it from your hands? That's a very big question. Because God does not want any rivals. The Bible is very clear. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, soul, and strength. Which means to say that God is our supreme and chief treasure. None should be, any, none should be a, a rival to God Himself. God has no rivals. I recall a young man who was touched by God when Osek was being presented to the church that he was in, he decided that he would sell his car and give it all to ending Osek. He owned a Mini Cooper. It's a very special car for those of you who are car enthusiasts. He, he was also a member of a Mini Cooper club. Again, that's a very special car, but God spoke to his heart and said, Son, I want you to sell your Mini Cooper and give everything to end OSEC. And in obedience, said to the Lord, Lord, I'm willing to sell the Mini Cooper and give all of the proceeds to end OSEC. Let me ask you this question. 
Is Jesus the Lord of your life? Really? And if He is really Lord of your life, if He requires something from your hand, something that is precious, something that is of great value to you, would you be willing to give it up for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, that's a big question. But that's a question that each and every one of us needs to be able to answer. Because if your answer is like this, Lord, I'm willing to give up everything, but Lord, just not this. This is really so precious. This is really so valuable to me, Lord. I'm not willing to give it up. If you make that statement, dear brothers and sisters, you will have to question the authenticity of your salvation. God must only be your sole and chief treasure. When you become a Christian, you die to yourself and you live for God. There is no part in our lives, no aspect in our lives that we leave for ourselves. When we surrender to God, we surrender everything. When we come to Christ, we say, Lord, everything I am and everything I have is yours. When you and I cannot say that everything I am and everything I have is yours, then we have got to question the authenticity of our salvation. Now, our God is not a cruel master. He is a generous one. But what He requires is undivided allegiance. What He requires is pure devotion on our part. And the way that you and I prove that we are truly children of God, sons and daughters of God, is that we are willing to give up that which is most valuable to us. Again, I submit that question to you. Would you be willing, just like Abraham, to give up your own Isaacs? For Abraham to be willing to do that meant that he genuinely believed in Yahweh. When a man shows that God is his first love and is willing to sacrifice anything, that is proof that he truly has faith and is a child of God. When God called me into the ministry, I told the Lord, Lord, wherever you want me to be, I am willing to go. However you want me to serve, Lord, I will serve you. At that moment, when I gave my life to Christ, I did not hold back anything from the Lord. And I believe this is essential. True and genuine repentance is exactly that. You do not hold back anything from the Lord. To the risk of your life, to the risk of your reputation, to the risk of your ambition and aspiration, to the risk of your treasures, you're willing to give up anything and everything for God. That is what proves the genuineness of our faith.
we take a look at the example of Rahab in verse 25. It says, in the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Allow me to go to a little sidebar here. Well, one of the things we see here is that Rahab proved her faith by her works, specifically by her helping Israeli spies. But two lessons are very important here. First of all, we find that Rahab was called a harlot. The Bible doesn't hide anything. It doesn't hide your past. It doesn't hide your sins. David was exposed by God in the Scriptures as an adulterer and a murderer. And in this particular case, Rahab was exposed as a harlot, a prostitute. Somebody who sold her flesh, somebody who sold her body so that she could have money. But here's the hope that I see in this particular passage. No matter what your past is, no matter who you are, no matter what wrong you have done, and you may have committed a heinous crime, you may have committed something horrible and something horrific, something that is unimaginable. And yet, friends, the grace of God is even bigger than your biggest sins. And praise God that har- this harlot, Rahab, found grace, found a home in the grace of God, which tells us that no matter who we are, Christ accepts us just as we are. And friends, this is the reason why when you come to Christ, you don't personally, individually clean up your life. You let the Holy Spirit do the cleaning up of your life. Salvation and sanctification is all by God. What we simply do is submit ourselves and participate and yield ourselves to the work of the Holy Spirit. And that is why those who are sinners, great sinners, have found refuge in God. You probably remember the story of the prodigal son. Well, there was this artist who wanted to paint the prodigal son, but he was looking for a model so that he could paint and bring to life the story of the prodigal son. So this artist was walking down the road, and he saw this beggar. And he remembered what happened to the prodigal son, how he had become poor, how he had lost everything, and how he was eating pig's food. And so he said, well, this beggar would make a good model for me as I paint the prodigal son. And so he talks to this uh, beggar and says, I'd like to use you as a model because I'm doing some painting on canvas. Could you, could you be my model? And because he wanted to have some money, the beggar said, sure. So when will we start? Well, we start tomorrow. So please come. Gave the address. And so the artist left. And so he was waiting for the beggar to come. A knock comes, takes place on the door, and then he sees this man. And he says, who are you? The artist asks, who are you? And the beggar says, well, it's me, remember? You talked to me yesterday, and you said you wanted to 
to make a model out of me. So I'm here. The problem was he had shaved himself, took a bath, and wore some nice clothes. And the artist said, you know what? Because you did that, you're no longer, you have no use to me whatsoever. I needed the beggar. I didn't need a clean-shaven man. I needed the beggar as my model. That illustrates how we approach God. When we approach God, we don't clean our lives. We don't cleanse ourselves. We come just as we are, with all our dirty clothes, with all our filth and dirt. And we come to Christ and we say, Lord, wash me, cleanse me, forgive me. You came across, we come across that verse which says, Though our sins be as scarlet, God will wash them white as snow. You know, the interesting things we discovered in Israel, the dye, the scarlet dye, which is actually taken from the deep sea, from one of the shells, is a dye. The scarlet dye is a permanent dye. All other dyes, the color washes off, okay? You have different colors. You have brown. You have maybe pink. They all wash off. But this dye, this scarlet dye, is a permanent color. No matter how many times you wash it, the color still stays. Interestingly, God was using that figure to explain to people that though your sins be as scarlet, God will wash them white as snow. Amen? Hallelujah. Praise God for that. Another lesson we find here is Rahab was believed to have become a sincere proselyte. Afterwards, she becomes the wife of Salmon, a prince of the tribe of Judah, becomes the mother of Boaz. How many here remember Boaz? Raise your hands, please. All right. You remember Boaz? So she was the ancestor of David. And if you take a look at the genealogy in the New Testament, she is included as the ancestor of Jesus Christ. Isn't that interesting? That Jesus would allow himself to fall in the line where Rahab the harlot belonged. And the New Testament records it for us. Christ was not embarrassed, ashamed, even humiliated that one of his ancestors used to be a harlot. But this speaks about the grace of God. I don't know the life that you have lived. I don't know if you have skeletons in your closet. I don't know if you are burying a secret six feet below the ground. I don't know if there are certain things that you are hiding which you are afraid to talk about. I'd like to tell you this. Jesus is a real friend. He could make a harlot into a woman 
who becomes his ancestor. Some Bible dictionaries and commentaries state that she may have even been the ancestress of many priests and prophets, including Jeremiah and Ezekiel. If that were true, what an amazing thing this is. Her position of dignity among the Hebrews is evident from the fact that her name appears in Christ's genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, verse 5. No matter how dark your past is, if you come to Christ, though your sins be as scarlet, He will wash them white as snow. Final lesson, however, is very important to note here. When Rahab was, was helping the spies of Israel, she was actually putting her life at risk. Not only her life, she was putting the life of her own family at risk. In all probability, she became a harlot or a prostitute because she wanted to provide for her family. That's the case with many who have sold their flesh. Sometimes they do it because they want to provide for the members of their family. Not that it is something that could be excused, but maybe that was what she was doing. And by now helping these Israeli spies, what was she doing? She was putting herself at risk. She, she was putting at risk her own family. She was risking her own nationality, her own reputation as a member of the nation of Jericho. But she was willing to give all of that up because she believed in Yahweh. My friends, let me ask you this question. Are, we, are you willing to risk your life for Christ? If a gun is pointed on your head, just as what is happening right now with some of our brethren in the Middle East, if a gun is pointed on your head and you are asked to recant your faith, are you going to recant your faith? If your properties would be seized, if you would be martyred, would you be willing to risk everything for the sake of Christ? As we think about these things, and you know, when we think about the examples of Abraham and Rahab, sometimes it puts us to shame. Because sometimes even the ordinary things we're not willing to give up for the sake of Christ. Even the simple thing of being faithful in giving to the Lord, we're not willing to do that at all. Even being able to forgive somebody, sometimes we're not willing to do that. I recall one woman who said, even if I go to hell, I will not forgive my husband. Somehow, bitterness has become a precious possession, something of value to this woman. She felt that by holding on to bitterness, by holding on to this grudge, she would be punishing her husband, who may not even be thinking about her. It's interesting how people hold on to certain things and not willing to give it up at all. 
but in Christ, we surrender all. Amen? We surrender everything. Let us, however, go back to the main point. What was the point of James? A man who truly has saving faith will manifest it by his good works. True faith is always accompanied by good works. Let me close with a story. There was a man whose job was to transport people from one side of the lake to another. But he was a Christian. And he always wanted to have the opportunity to share the gospel. So he had two oars, which he would use to row the boat. One oar that he had had the word faith on it. And then the other oar had the word works on it. So he would bring the people in the middle of the lake, he would stop, and he would only use one hand. So he would use the oar, which says works, and guess what happens? They go round and round, not going anywhere. So he stops, puts the other hand at the back, gets the other oar, which has the word faith. Then he starts rowing, and once again, they go back in circles. And he tells them one very powerful lesson. He tells them faith and works are twins. If one is genuinely saved, if one has genuine faith, it will show in the works. It will show in one's changed life. And my prayer to God is that you're saved by faith, but you have the evidence to prove it because you are able to show your good works. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes at this time. While every head is bowed, every eye is closed. Ask yourself this question. Am I really a Christian? Better still, can you ask the Holy Spirit right now? Talk to the Holy Spirit and ask Him this question. Am I really a Christian? And as you ask the Holy Spirit to do that, be honest. If you need saving, ask God to save you right now. Ask God for forgiveness. Because though your sins be as scarlet, they will be washed white as snow. Talk to God right now. As you talk to God, surrender everything. Tell Him, Lord, if I have not surrendered everything to You, I surrender all right now. I surrender my life, everything I am, everything I have is yours. Whatever you require of me, as you empower me, 
I will do it, Lord. Let Jesus reign in your heart. Let Jesus become part of your life right now. And for those of you who know 100% you're sure that you are a believer, is there anything in your life that you have not surrendered? Is there an Isaac that you cannot give up? Might be something valuable, just like what this brother had, his mini cooper. It could be a sin that you're holding on to, a grudge, a bitterness that you're not willing to let go. You just want to be bitter. Give it up. Are there some here who have fallen prey to lust and you're in bondage to pornography? It has become worse than drug addiction and you just have this appetite to just look into the internet and watch and watch and watch and you're never satisfied let go of that there's something that is far greater in importance and value come to Christ that Jesus be the all and all in your life pray please pray on your own seek God let's give ourselves a couple of minutes to meditate on the word and for all of us to just come before Him in prayer. Oh Lord, Your Word has been spoken. We have two very powerful examples. The example of Abraham who, after waiting for 55 long years, was asked to surrender his son on an altar as a sacrifice. What pain that must have brought to the heart of Abraham as he had seen Isaac grow from a baby to a toddler to a child to a teenager and then into adulthood only to be surrendered again. But Abraham trusted you and trusted in your goodness and maybe even trusted that though you would take Isaac, you could resurrect him again. What faith. 
what example that is. And Rahab, Lord, she was willing to risk her life, risk her family, because she believed in you. She believed that Yahweh was giving the Israeli people a land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and she wanted to become part of it. So she risked everything for your sake. And may that be true as well in our lives. Father, I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit to move upon every heart right now. Lord, give us a God moment right now. Only you could do that. Give us a God moment right now and let the Word of God just come alive in our hearts, O Father God. Bring strong conviction, even repentance, O God. We pray, Father, that You would revive us and bring us back to our first love, O God. Move, O Father, amongst Your people, O Father, and grant us Your grace and grant us Your power, Lord, that we might be able to live our lives unto Your glory. Thank You, Father. Thank You for today. We also thank You that we could give our tithes, our grace gifts, and our offerings. Lord, use them for the glory of Your holy name. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen and amen.